Hi there, and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today, we have Deputy Executive Director of Greenpeace USA, Chad Stein, with us. Chad, can you please tell us uh, who you are and what you do? Hi, Lava. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here and have the conversation today. Um, yeah, so Deputy Executive uh, Greenpeace US, been there for about uh, seven years and had an opportunity to be in a lot of different roles over my times at the organization. Uh, started out uh, within the data team and, and came up to uh, COO after that. Had an opportunity to actually step in and lead on the program side of, of our house uh, a couple years ago and uh, moved into Deputy Executive Director after that. Uh, prior to that, I, I really started in healthcare. So, uh, grew up in a small college town uh, in Virginia here, where uh, health system is a big part of uh, the economy. And uh, started in the finance area there, and got into technology within that space, uh, and then moved into consulting on that specific technology, a multi-dimensional reporting analytics platform. And uh, moved from from consulting to some time at Fannie Mae, which is part of our uh, secondary mortgage market here in the U.S. And then from Fannie Mae, actually back to consulting with the the same organization for a while, and then decided I want to do something a bit different and started looking at nonprofits. And that's when I kind of made the move uh, into Greenpeace. That's uh, that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you because you had a past that wasn't. Um charity related and now you are in, in an NGO space my, my main question I always ask people is first of all why what triggered it and what do you feel is the difference between the two worlds yeah um, you know I, I think it's a I think it's an interesting question in terms of what triggers folks as they're kind of going through their journey for for me there was a few different things I mean I think first and foremost uh, I was financially comfortable uh, and I think once you become financially comfortable, the, the, the way that you process and think about uh, salary changes a bit. And so I wasn't living paycheck to paycheck and I was able to think, uh, you know, what, what else is really there? Because I wasn't feeling as fulfilled as, as I you know, thought I would or, or was, you know, kind of taught that I would, that that money was the primary thing to focus on. So part of it was just trying to figure out, you know, what, what, what was missing for me and, and what does that look like? Um, I also, you know, have an eight-year-old, and so at, at that point, start to have a kid and think about, you know, like what is the world like for this person when you're done, um, and you know, just just thinking about things differently. Like having having a child changes your focus um, and your perspective on what's important. And uh, within that, there, there's a movie uh, called Chasing Ice, which is uh, was done by a National Geographic photographer who went out and kind of put these cameras in place to 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 show time lapse of the glaciers receding, basically. Um, and at one point within that, he talks about having a conversation with his daughter and imagining, you know, after you know, twenty years down the road, what she would say, you know, what were you doing when climate change was going on? And he really just thought about wanting to be able to say he was doing everything that he could, and I knew I was not. Um, so, so that was a big part of it for me was thinking about how could I have the biggest impact, uh, possible, uh, within that construct. And, and that's really a lot of what pushed me to make that pivot. So what I'm hearing is you, you had a child and then that started shifting or, or was it, was it right after, uh, yeah, I mean, I think having the child is part of it, but it's a process, right? Like, uh, my undergrad was in economics where you're, you know, basically the construct is supply and de demand and the market takes care of everything. Um, and, and, you know, I had just had 
different perspectives on whether that was actually the the case or not. And so looking for, you know, how does the world work and, you know, how, how can you do some, some good and how can it just be more than just about, you know, kind of dollars and cents. So I think that was already there. Um, and, and having the, the kid come into the picture, just kind of amplify that a bit more. And, and probably also, you know, I had been, I don't know if I would say environmentalist, but you know, had, had a scuba diver. And so I've been out in nature and kind of seen that kind of things and, and seen, you know, reefs that are in really great shape and reefs that are not in great shape. And oftentimes the, uh, the, the variable there is human intervention in some way, shape or form. And so I already had kind of those sorts of, um, ideas, I guess I would say, but I hadn't really figured out how to apply them per se. Um, and also in, in, in grad school, I took a, a social entrepreneurship elective uh, and that's something where there were people who, who worked at nonprofits in that class, um, people who were in you know, government positions and that kind of stuff. And so that was also really a, a, a trigger for me and, and part of the thought process to really think about there being alternatives to the, to the corporate side. At least at that point, that was you know, front and center for me. Because it sounds to me also when I was looking into it, and I'm assuming most people don't start thinking about let's save the world. So my question then is, when you started, when you were maybe a child or already um, studying in, in college, you said you, you were already doing something, but were you actively actually doing something or were you like most of us just, uh, no, I just want to go through college i just want to get a good job it sounds to me like you were like most of us kind of going through the motions of actually finding your passions and stuff like that yeah i think that's right i i i wasn't you know an activist growing up i i have activism within my family like my parents and that kind of stuff we'd been to marches and stuff as a kid but that really wasn't what i was doing um and and so i i wasn't super active uh at that point and and again i think starting out like you said i was just trying to figure out how to be successful, how to have money, kind of live the American dream, right? Like that's, that's what we're, we're, we're told it's all about. And so a, a, a big part of it for me was getting to a point where I was, um, you know, financially comfortable. And I think, you know, kind of Maslow's hierarchy, that gives you a little bit of space to think about things beyond that once you're there, right? It's really hard to, you know, ask someone to pay a lot more money for, for something that's uh, environmentally responsible when they can't feed their kids. Uh, and so I think that that was also a big part of it, just being at a point where financially I was in a good space to have the, you know, the opportunity and the privilege to think about how do you make a difference. Right. Well, what I uh, really want to find out in the story is how that journey got you to get you certain skills that are now kind of contributing to Greenpeace. But in order for the listeners to understand that, maybe you can explain kind of briefly what you've actually done within Greenpeace. Um, and maybe the skills that have contributed from your past to to make make a difference within Greenpeace. Yeah, I mean, coming coming into Greenpeace, I, I would say that my kind of my pitch to them was because of my consulting background, I have have experience kind of coming into different organizations and learning a business pretty quickly, um, and then trying to find ways to improve that via either technology, process, you know, those sorts of things. And and so part of my uh, again, my pitch in the interview process was, hey, I've done this many, many times. I've come into different organizations, and so I can come in to this organization and learn, learn what you guys do. Um, and then I was fortunate to be in the, the data space, which is uh, you know, pretty tightly knit with the fundraising side of the house. And so to come in, when I first came into the data team, I kind of had two parallels tracks. One was 
you know, understanding where we were from a technology perspective within the data, what, you know, putting a vision together and creating kind of a roadmap for how do we kind of take that in the right direction. And then the second part was really digging in with the fundraising team and learning how that worked. And because fundraising is about, you know, dollars and cents, it's very similar to a lot of my previous experience in terms of, you know, oftentimes being in the finance side of a, of a house uh, in my consulting experience or Fannie Mae, mostly in the finance side of the house, that kind of stuff. So started really with those kind of two tracks within, um, within my data role. Uh, and we got to the point where we had a pretty, we rolled out and, and got support for a pretty major revamp of all the systems. So replacing all the CRM, business intelligence, all that kind of stuff. What do you mean you got support like donors or what happened? No, I mean, internal with leadership, senior leadership specifically, we, we have a platform that was, uh, the main CRM had, had not been touched for over 20 years. Um, and when they replaced it the last time, it was pretty bad and they had multiple months of not being able to process donations and that kind of stuff. So there was a bit of scar tissue, I would say, around that. Um, and so just to get the organization to be willing to go into that again and see that as something that they needed to do, that was kind of um, the first step that, you know, myself and the CIO had had to get uh again, support from senior management at, at that point. And I was fortunate that uh, my executive director who, who came in new very shortly after I did in 2013 had done uh, significant CRM work at other organizations and therefore it just kind of made sense to, to her. And so we got support for that. Uh, and that's been almost five years ago. There, we actually, um, you know, I've moved on to other roles, but the, the data team just did the final migration of the core fundraising CRM last month. Wow, uh, and so five, it really took excited. you five years to... Yeah, I, yeah it, it, was a, it was a lot longer than probably we would have wanted to be. I mean, part of that is we did have multiple transitions within data leadership. So some of that my own fault by, by moving to the COO role and then you know, moving through and, and you know, really taking our time and doing it right. So, I mean, we could spend probably a whole, uh, a whole podcast talking about CRM migrations and all the stuff that goes into that and how we did it. But yeah, it was a long haul, but, but I think we're, you know, we're coming out in a good place on the other side. So, so that was kind of where, where it started was within the data team and within those kind of two tracks. Uh, I, I actually got up to speed pretty quickly on the fundraising to the point where when the fundraising director left, I think it was about five or six months in, we had a few people left, but eventually I was tapped in to, to be the interim for a couple of months to run that department while we hired somebody new in. Um, and so that was my first opportunity to be in the senior management uh, space of the organization. But, but what does the fundraising director do then? So the fundraising director is, is responsible for all of the fundraising programs. So, you know, for, for Greenpeace US, there's two entities. There's uh, 501c3 and c4. Um, and there's lots of different programs, lots of different ways that, that we, you know, bring donations into the organization. So, so we, we like to have a lot of uh, small individual donors, what we call monthly donors, who give us, you know, $20, $25 a month. Um, and, and so about half of our income comes from that. Uh, we also have a direct mail program. We have telemarketing where we're converting people to donors who maybe we get leads online, that kind of stuff. Uh, digital fundraising has been something that we've been trying to expand the entire time that I've been there. And, and, you know, we've come a long way on that, but still, you know, think we can do more. And especially right now with COVID, you know, are really trying to emphasize and continue to invest in that space. Um, and, and then we have kind of what we call the special contributor side of the house, which is more of the high dollar uh, fundraising. So that's where you have, you know, high, high net worth individuals who may give large amounts. Uh, we do a little bit of foundations. 
Um, and then we actually uh, have, have folks who put us in their will um, and, and kind of leave part of their estate to the organization uh, that, that comes in. So all of those pieces sit under the fundraising director or what we call the chief development officer now. Um, and, and they have a, you know, obviously a, a team that, that has specialists in each of those areas. But, but my role at that time was really to work with kind of the directors, the leaders of those teams. Uh, and we, we were in a budgeting cycle. So that was fortunate for me because I had a lot of experience in kind of budgeting and, and that kind of stuff. And so I was able to kind of step in and, and uh, be part of that, that process at that point, which again was, was very soon after I had gotten there. Um, but I, I was fortunate that fundraising was, you know, felt normal and was pretty easy for me to get in and, and understand. So that was first year or so, uh, moved to, you know, director in that data position. And then uh, COO came open a couple of years later. Um, and so applied and actually when the COO, we had COO and CFO depart at the same time. And so my kind of background of finance and operations and stuff like that was useful. And so I was able to actually step in and help r run the organizational budget process, uh, wrap up kind of three-year planning cycle as a, you know, just kind of backfilling and then stepped into the COO role. Uh, it was only in that for officially, I guess, about six months before the program director stepped down. And, and I had said that, you know, worked with my executive director and a few other senior leaders to say, hey, I'll, I'll go in for a few months and try to straighten some things out, kind of see what's there and diagnose. And uh, that wound up about six months and we decided that I need to stay a bit longer uh, and, and kind of unwind some things before we brought somebody else in. So it wound up being about two and a half years that I stayed in the program director role and when we just hired uh, into that role in But February. so you were CFO and COO at the same time? Yeah, I mean, the CFO was pretty informal. We have a really strong controller uh, who has an audit background and, you know, knows the numbers inside and out. So, you know, my role as CFO was really about strategic finance. And so, like, we had a big conversation in terms of contribution and kind of how we pool resources globally. And so I would plug into those kind of conversations, but I was really fortunate to have a really strong, you know, accounting team and finance team that was doing the day-to-day -day books, that kind of stuff. Um, and so a lot of my, my work was just kind of stabilizing at the more strategic level, making sure we were talking about the right things, thinking about the budget process in the right way, uh, and kind of plugging into some of those global conversations. So, so how were the roles different for you being a COO and a CFO? And obviously you were both. How did you divide between them? How, what is the definition for you of both? Because I sometimes run into organizations where the COO focuses on completely different stuff yeah. than in a different organization. Yeah, it, it was really interesting. Actually, when I was thinking about the COO job, one of my biggest concerns was it was so nebulous and undefined and felt impossible. And I remember at one point uh, before I had applied, we were all collectively kind of looking at the job description um, and someone said, you know, is this too big? Is this job description too big? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like no one person can do all of this at one time, but you have to kind of prioritize and pick goals and focus within that. So, um, you know, I don't think there is a clear answer between the two. I can say for me in that time, my role as CFO, again, was more kind of strategic direction uh, what are the, the initiatives that we need to look at? Like, do we need to replace systems? Uh, we weren't focused on, you know, uh, shortening the close time or stuff like that. That sometimes is a lot of what's going on within the finance space. For us, it was just catching up a little bit on some systems. So like we replaced 
um, you know, some of our accounting systems and better reporting and analytics, getting stuff out of Excel into either data warehouse or, you know, financial systems for the budget, uh, pushing to move the, we, we had a quarterly forecast, but it was basically that controller and the CFO and myself who were really doing that and moving that to be more of, you know, the, the budget holders themselves being expected to go through on a quarterly basis and kind of update, which is, you know, sounds, sounds crazy, but cause it's pretty standard in most corporate spaces but for us that wasn't what we were doing um so so that that was the cfo role uh at that point like i wasn't actively closing the books again my my controller was rock solid and and that's what he was really driving um and then the coo was at that point it was trying to think about more kind of you know i would say uh enterprise risk broader strategic initiatives outside of uh, finance, right? So finance was part of that, but for us, finance sits underneath the COO in addition to, you know, HR, the IT data, facilities, all those kind of things. So we also, uh, within that budget cycle, we had some deficits. We wound up making some changes in terms of office spaces, uh, closing an office that we had been in for a long time, downsizing a little bit, that kind of stuff. So it was, it was, uh, it was a pretty strong blend. I mean, I think the, the main thing that I would say that I did that was traditionally CFO was like, you know, bringing complex financial concepts to the board and trying to help them understand what was going on. Um, and then, like I said, there was that big kind of global conversation about, you know, how we, how we pool funds and that kind of stuff. And so that was definitely a traditional CFO role, I would say, uh, in terms of stepping in in that way. What I love and the reason also why um, I was excited to invite you on the podcast is because, and we discussed this prior to, to you getting on, is that we could uh, focus on, you know, really getting into the business nitty gritty of what is happening. Because I tend to notice that when uh, social entrepreneurs or people that start charities, they really want to get a cost across but but there's no business or you know systems are 20 years old and nobody cares and nobody understands that if you start you know modernizing putting innovation in that things just move faster things go better and and what I love about your career within Greenpeace is that obviously you were fundraising director you went into the CFO role COO role and obviously the role you're in right now I I always learn from stories. So I, I guess my question is, you were mentioning already like things you did in your COO role. Um, I definitely want to cover what you did as a fundraising director. But what kind of changes did you do that that everybody would understand that is listening to this um, that really changed what was happening within Greenpeace? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a data geek at, at heart. And so I think there's in all of those steps, there's been an improvement in terms of analytics, the way that we have insights, the way that we understand what's going on. Um, and that looks pretty different in the different roles, right? So in the, in the data role, the CRM, and the, uh, we actually put in Looker uh, for kind of self-service analytics, which was pretty significant change from what we were on. But what, um, what, what does that change give Greenpeace? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it levels the playing field a bit so that people are working with similar information, right? So that's one of the things that when you think about, you know, decision making, it's like who who has access to what information? Um, how do we all look at the same thing? And how do we make decisions more quickly? Because it's not a, you know, it's not one person bringing their number and the other person saying, I have no idea what that means. I'm not going to use that in the conversation, but kind of grounding the 
the important conversations and decision making and you know consistent measurement KPIs that kind of stuff. So again, pretty pretty standard stuff, as, uh, especially for folks who work in that reporting and analytics space about what you're trying to do uh, in terms of you know turning information into things that can help you make decisions uh, and do that in a in a consistent way. Um, and so so I think that's one thing that get, kind of flows through and. Um, you know, look, looks a little bit different as, as you go. I think the other thing that, that, you know, this is not one that, that obviously I did by myself, but, you know, I think pushing a little bit on, uh, what are the things that we do that are more kind of traditions versus things where we need different things to get the job done now, right? Like, so people say, what got you here won't get you there. Or, you know, we actually had a, uh, consulting group come in and work with us when we were talking about hiring that kind of stuff and they actually talked about this concept of you know when when you're creating your job descriptions are you focused on the actual must-haves for that role or are you thinking about you know traditions and preferences that you have within the organization which are different than the requirements that you need to get the job done and so i think especially early on when i was kind of the new guy from the outside a lot of what I was doing was kind of asking why and, and pushing folks beyond what well, we've always done it that way or, you know, this is this is kind of sitting there. So I think that's, you know, I, I've moved around a decent amount in, in my career and I think that's one of the benefits that I always talk to new folks about is like, hey, I want you to ask that question and I want you to push. Uh, you know, again, I think that is, I think that works nonprofit and on the corporate side, right? Like to, to really not accept status quo. I think that's, that's probably the part of the biggest thing that that I really tried to do was was push people especially folks in leadership that leadership is about you know what comes next and how do you take the next step not the status quo and and really trying to challenge folks to to come up and and have a vision for their space you know we also talk about like what are you the CEO of like everyone has something that they should really feel like they own and, and control and be thinking about strategically how they want to improve that um, and so I think that kind of concept of continuous improvement, which kind of, again, come from my consulting days, was, was something else that uh, was just kind of the mindset that I naturally brought into the space. But so outside of changing the CRM system, I heard you, um, you said something about downsizing an office. Can you tell us more about those things, the, the, the bad parts as well as the good parts that you did across your roles um, and the learning lessons you drew from those? Yeah, that that's that's a long one. I mean, I I think there's always a, a combination of, of good and bad, and and my perspective, I think you learn probably more from from the mistakes, or at least I try to. Um, yeah, I mean, I think offices specifically, what I really kind of landed on, we we had some folks that were virtual. We had two pretty big physical uh, spaces as well. We also have warehouses based on kind of how we deploy stuff out in the field, um, and. From my perspective, we were getting kind of the cons of both the 100% virtual model and the 100% in-person model, and we weren't getting as many of the benefits of either model. Why um, did you decide that? What What was it about the data that you looked at and you were thinking, okay, this isn't working out here? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the virtual, you, you theoretically should have lower, you know, costs in terms of just physical space. And so we had, you know, a decent amount of staff that were virtual. And so we were trying to figure out how do you, a lot of similar things to what a lot of folks are, are grappling with now with COVID, like how do you work effectively remotely? Um, how do you build kind of culture and that kind of stuff when people are not in the same space? So we were trying to solve those challenges. But at the same time, you know, we still had significant amount of physical space that wasn't usually full. 
uh, that was sitting on the books for, for multiple years at a time um, at, at decent cost. Um, and, and so I think you know, that, that's a good example of where we were kind of mixing and matching. Part of that was it was a retention strategy, right, where we are maybe not paying as, as well as some other places. And many times, you know, we just can't compete in certain jobs if folks are going to go corporate especially. Um, and so we, we started to explore, you know, what kind of virtual, how, how that could be a retention strategy, uh, which I think made sense. But again, it was because we were in the hybrid model, it was really, um, it, it was really complicated in terms of, you know, what were we actually getting out of either way. And, and I wanted there to be like, aha, here's the answer, right? Like we should do this and everybody wins. And what I really kind of landed on is like, there's not a perfect answer. There's going to be pros and cons to whatever you do in terms of that kind of mixture. And we needed to make a choice for us uh, and and go with it. I mean, the other thing, we, we still have folks virtual and, and we had a decent uh, mixture still. So we downsized offices, but we didn't close offices. Um, so and, you, you pretty much wrestled with the decision that all of the companies are wrestling now due to Corona. You wrestled with that decision a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, it, it's some... It's part of it, yes. I mean, we, we had folks that were remote, right? So we had a decent footprint of remote staff, 15 to 20. And, you know, my oversimplistic ideal was, can we go 100% virtual or can we have everybody in the office, right? As the two kind of goalposts of, of you know, what your strategy to physical space uh, could be, should be. Um, and the, the, the short version is we couldn't land 100% one or the other. But, um, but why not? So I'm obviously as we're a much smaller company, but as we're scaling, these same questions tend to pop up. And then I would love to know what was happening. What were you seeing that you decided it was not possible to put it either in the office or uh, virtually? And then what was the solution? Was it like once a week would they come over? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is we already had so many people that were distributed in spaces that we were not willing to lose. We were not willing to force to say you either come back to an office or you lose your job. We didn't have the, it wasn't that strong of a feel on the leadership team that we wanted to lean into that. That's that's the short version, right? Like we were already in this kind of hybrid mode and, and therefore we kind of had, let's say, sunk costs that, that we were not willing to kind of move past. Uh, and, and deal with the impact of that. I mean, another example is like we, we've often talked about, you know, having a headquarters in a lower cost city. Our, our two main offices are in Washington, D.C. And, and in the Bay out in San Francisco, which are two of the most expensive uh, cities in the country. Um, and so we, we talk about, well, it would be great to be somewhere else that's, that's lower cost. But within that, you have to at some point draw a line and say, okay, everybody has to be at new location by X or else your job goes away type thing. Um, and so I think that's the that's the dynamic that gets hard and, and where, you know, folks just want to find some kind of middle solution where more people can, can have positive outcomes than, like I said, kind of one in or the other. So we, we still have, what we wound up doing is um, in, in the U.S., the, the ability to work in specific locations or states, like each one you go to, there's different kind of licensing, insurance, that kind of stuff that you have to deal with. And so we, we decreased the footprint of where folks could go a little bit um, and, you know, continue to think about what does it look like to downsize the office space more. So we did downsize a bit the San Francisco office um, and that, you know, we're, now we're having a conversation about when would we actually go back into the offices 
Um, and how does that play into a question of what do we want the you know next two to three years to look like in terms of office space? So when you were downsizing, I'm assuming that more people were went virtual then or they would not show up every day at the office. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing that was made it for again, this is oversimplification, but for me, it felt like a bit of a no brainer is the, the office wasn't full. The, the San Francisco office specifically, which was the big one that, that we got out, we, we moved and downsized. It was, we, people like the concept of the office and they like to be able to come into the office, you know, every once, once every couple of weeks or something to see their peers and that kind of stuff. But in terms of consistently in the office, you didn't have that many people that were there. So we were able to downsize, had to do some hot desking, which folks, you know, really didn't like the concept, but in practice, the office wasn't full, so we were able to, to decrease and really focus on those folks who were actually coming in consistently, um, try to understand what they needed, meet their needs, smaller footprint, um, you know, save a bit of money, and then, you know, explore kind of the hot desk game concept, because again, that, that's something that wasn't popular, like people didn't like that, they really want their desk and their space and their pictures and all that stuff, even if they only come in like once every two weeks, they want their space. Um, but, you know, we, we actually were able to decrease and, and do a little bit of both again because of the utilization just wasn't really uh, as high as it would have needed to be to justify the full footprint we had. So so you mentioned hot desking, is that the concept uh, that you mentioned? Yeah, so just basically that some desks are not a permanent for anyone, like you can go into Google Calendar and say, hey, I'm going to come into the office today and I, therefore I need a desk and see what's available. Um, oh, so you, you book, book, you book uh, tables like you book conference rooms. That's right, that's right. And do yeah. the people have storage on site? Yep, that's exactly right. Oh, so that's pretty much how you save costs. You make sure that they have a storage and then they can book uh, a desk uh, because they're coming in that day. And that was really our solution for, again, kind of those in-between folks who were coming in a little bit here or there but weren't in on a daily basis. We tried to, the folks that we knew were consistently coming in, we tried to give them a, a consistent space. So it, it was we took a hybrid approach within that. That's really smart. What did you notice happened after that change uh, got implemented? How long did it take for people to get used to it? Did people actually leave because of it? Yeah, I don't I don't know that we had anybody leave directly because of that. I mean, the other thing that we did is I don't know how familiar you are with the the San Francisco area, but there's kind of there's San Francisco proper and then there's Oakland or kind of what they call the bay. Um, and so we actually split from one big office in San Francisco to two smaller offices to see how that worked. That was not popular. Um, you know, folks missed, the people who came in consistently missed being in the same space. They felt scattered, that kind of stuff. Uh, so we actually, second step after that, we, we got a consolidated office still smaller in Oakland, which we're really happy about now. Um, that folks really are excited. I mean, it's gorgeous, great location, great views, you know, all that kind of stuff, obviously not being used right now, but that that it was it was you know we just said we're going to try it right we're going to test it we're going to see what it looks like to have you know not only go smaller but to separate into kind of two little spaces uh and we found out that that didn't work and so we adjusted to that and and consolidated again but but in a you know different part of the city and still at a at a smaller size maybe maybe an interesting question but um when i when i think about um i actually used to work for for charities and um, I was also in fundraising. And one of the things I always uh, heard from donors who wanted to donate was, where does the money go to? And yeah. I always uh, remember showing like the diagrams and then there was always this percentage of obviously overhead. 
But then the question, I can imagine people that want to donate, they always think like, why does Greenpeace need an office? Why, you know, pretty much, yeah, why? Yeah. And especially you coming uh, from a private sector, you're not brainwashed or anything. You're coming in, looking at it and thinking, you know, why do you need an office with a view? Why can't you, <laughs> to put it bluntly, why can't you like work out of a basement or something like yeah. Apple when they started or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I part of my answer is, but I, I don't, I don't think we should think about nonprofits differently than we think about the corporate world as the first starting point. Right. So part of the office is that's where my staff go to work. And if it has no windows, they're not going to be happy. They're not, as you said, they're going to leave. They're going to do that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think the first part is we're, you know, we're a 40, $50 million organization. And like any other 40, $50 million organization, we need to attract talent. Uh, we need people to, to be excited about what they see when they come into interview. We need them to feel comfortable and productive in a space. So that's why, you know, having an office that is, is, is useful is good is helps them be productive again the same argument for why you would do it in the in the corporate side i mean one of the 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 interesting kind of narratives is specifically in the bay we need an office so that donors can come in and visit us and see us right that's part of the the narrative we also and uh, does that actually contribute does that really help that you guys are in the bay area yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely, uh, you know, a, a strong footprint of, you know, NGOs with, within that space. Um, and there's definitely kind of a, an ecosystem there, I would say. Uh, so, so I, yeah, I think we will always have a footprint of some sort there based on that. Uh, some of that's donors. Some of that is, you know, uh, allies or other organizations that we're going to work with who have, you know, a lot of key staff there, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, there's definitely an eco ecosystem uh, there that, that means we do we do need to maintain something there. I mean, I think the other thing that, you know, we've done historically is have a place for, you know, people to come in and meet, host, you know, kind of conversations with allies and that kind of stuff. And, and so I think that's, um, we've, when we were kind of in between and ha didn't have the one big office, we, you know, found ways to accomplish that in, in different ways via kind of our allies who had space they would share or renting out spaces or that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, I, I think it's a choice, right? It, it is an intentional choice. Just just like you said, from a corporate perspective, you, you can decide not to have that space. Um, and that's not the decision that we've made. Uh, again, from, from my perspective, I don't think it, there's a 100% there's a right answer. I think it's a spectrum and you figure out, you know, what you really are trying to maximize for and you have to make a choice within that. And for us, uh, at least the last time we had the conversation, it was to maintain uh, some of that physical footprint uh, and not expand the, the virtualness, kind of actually tighten the virtualness a little bit. I mean, the other thing that always comes up, which is really interesting, is whenever you get people who are distributed together in the room, right, for a meeting or whatever that is, one of the things that always comes up is this was really incredible to be together. It's crazy how much better it is to be together, right? So, Right. I, 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 yeah, again, I think you have to make a choice and decide what you're going to do. I think the complicated thing right now is, you know, when I think about if you want to be 100% virtual, then I assume that you're going to travel a lot more to have, you know, two, three, four, whatever it is, times a year when you get everybody in person and you can't do that right now. Um, and so I think that makes it a little bit different than, than the normal conversation that you would have. So, so you mentioned you guys have two offices, one in San Francisco and one in Washington? Correct. So... I'm assuming San Francisco because most of the Silicon Valley companies are there. So potential big donors in Washington because of the politics or? 
Yeah, I mean that's that's the the short the short version. I think um, you know also again the kind of non the NGO ecosystem that's in San Francisco. So a lot of our allies are based have their headquarters in San Francisco area as well, and so that plays into it as well. Uh, but it's certainly a, a donor side of it, and I would say even beyond Silicon Valley, just kind of California more broadly, like that's where most of our uh, donors are are located in the U.S. Um, and so it's good to be where your donors are and to to be able to, you know, for them to see you, to understand what you're doing, to have the opportunity to kind of interact all those all those things. And, and what about Washington then? Yeah, I mean Washington is is certainly you know I would say federal, right? So some of it is on the Hill, the the very senior political stuff. There's also a lot of times where we're going to other agencies about you know, ocean sanctuaries or things like that, that are, you know, all the kind of agencies that are spread around. So it's good to, you know, be there to have that kind of physical connection. There are also times when we want to go, you know, do a mobilization at one of those places. And so having people physically in the office who can go out and, and set up somewhere with, with supporters or what that might be, I think that's another part of it as well. Um, but, but our relationship to, to kind of federal politics and how we see that in our theory of change about how you drive things has evolved over time. Uh, we, we have, you know, really focused on corporate uh, power and, and that kind of stuff in a lot of our campaigns traditionally. Um, and so it's always a mixture of how much is it thinking about corporate and, and kind of supply chains and who actually has power in that way to influence that side and, and where is there more of a direct interaction and that mixture has um like i said that's evolved over the years so so wait what you're saying right now is that over time what's evolved is that politics has gained less power than corporate or or i i think i'd say it a little bit differently which is basically the you know especially in the in the u.s that the corporations have a lot of control and power over what happens within the political space and so, you know, we can, Greenpeace as an NGO is never going to be able to compete with the corporations in terms of pure dollars that we can throw at that conversation. And so we have to find a different way to try to influence that conversation. Which so you're is often, going to the source, which, which is, is very often much the corporate going into the corporations and, and kind of trying to understand the, the power dynamics there and how you can drive change within that way. And so, and you said that was an evolution. So that means that before politics played a bigger role. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, before my time, certainly the seven years that I've been here, when I first got here, we really had, you know, I think some of us would say we'd kind of seeded the, the playing field of, of the political space. Um, and, you know, we're being in the moment we are right now with the kind of administration that we have makes us, you know, kind of come back and, and wonder, can we have, should we be pushing there in a different way? Uh, what is our role within that? And is there a role for us, right? We're, we're politically independent, nonpartisan. Um, and so it's complicated for us to be within that space. Uh, but, but at the same time, it is, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a unique moment in the U.S. right now. And so I think everyone is trying to figure out how, what's their role within that context. That's actually something interesting that I w wanted to ask, because um, we are looking um, towards uh, the United States as well with our organization to maybe go there. Um, and one of the things that I'm obviously swamped with news and media, and one of the things that keeps popping up for me is if I go there, does that mean that you, even if you want to be um, like independent, you don't think uh, we don't really think that much about politics? You say you're politically, there is no leniency or something like that. But internally, I can imagine people are Republican or Democrats or something. Is that the case or do people just not care? 
Yeah, I, I think it's, I think every organization is a little bit different. I, I think, you know, our staff trends kind of on the progressive side without a doubt. Um, and, you know, something that we often have to reinforce and, and help people think about is, you know, what Greenpeace does is different than what you do as an individual. And it's important to have that line and to understand that line. Um, and, you know, I think especially in the moment, the heat of everything that's going on, people feel really passionately about what should be happening. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's going to show up in our work and sometimes it's not. And, and that can be really tough for folks. But that is, you know, that's how it works, right? Greenpeace organization is different than you as an, as an individual. Maybe what's interesting also to ask, um, just out of genuine curiosity, I remember when uh, Trump was coming up, people were like, even if he gets elected, like things won't end up that bad. Clearly, climate policies have been yeah. enforced that were probably unexpected. So my question is, he got elected. How bad did it get for you guys? Was there any influence? Um, did something change or did your campaign towards corporates really help you not feel anything? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a real mixed bag. I mean, I, the first thing I would say is everyone was devastated. Oh, not everyone. Most of our staff was pretty devastated emotionally um, and surprised that that was the outcome. And, and so just everyone personally needed a moment, if that makes sense, to, to take a breath and, and understand what had happened and, and kind of process that. Um, in terms of the campaigns and the work, it, it, it varies by kind of the campaign, right? So one of the things that I always talk about is, is kind of a portfolio concept in our work. And so that means you have a mixture of things going on. Um, and each one of those has a slightly different uh, theory of change or kind of power dynamic that's been mapped out. And, and so the, the strategy is a little bit different. Some of those were completely blown out of the water based on Trump election. Um, and some of those less so because they weren't actually dependent on, you know, that decision making uh, being the key kind of concept of how you would drive change. Can, can you give some examples of what got blown out of the water? Yeah, I mean, I, our, our, our climate policy specifically, where we, we had just assumed that we were continuing to push on the progressive side and this is how it was going to work and these were the key things that we wanted to go on very quickly. Because uh, what, what do you guys exactly do on, on that yeah, I mean, it, that, that could be a whole different conversation, and there's lots of other people in the organization who should have that conversation with you. But, I mean, I think the, 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 short, the short answer is, you know, trying to, you know, defend environmental va- boundaries to limit the, the warming of the planet b- below kind of the 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees that, you know, we, we've decided is, is survivable. Um, and, and so within that, there's a lot of different ways. Within our climate work, a lot of it is about fossil fuels. Um, and getting off of fossil fuels and, and really kind of moving. Not Yes, renewables are great, and that's, that's a huge part of it. we got to keep pushing there, but we have to also stop pulling fossil fuels out of the ground because there's such a big kind of lock-in when you put in a new pipeline or, you know, those sorts of things that you're, you're locking in that uh, investment for 20 to 40 years, and, and those corporations need to get their money back. Those stakeholders need to get their money back. So a big part of the, the broad kind of, uh, you know, climate climate arch is about, you know, really talking about what does it look like to get off of fossil fuels. And so there's, you know, a lot of the Green New Deal stuff and that kinds of stuff, uh, those sorts of conversations is uh, aligned with kind of our, our concepts. And so you guys go out in the field and talk to politicians to, or you, 
what what yeah. actually happens. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's some of that again. That's a smaller part of it, and and I, you know, we've we've been going through a pretty fundamental shift globally in terms of the way that we think about the work as well, um, and and really thinking about you know people power. What does it mean to be within the movement? Continuing to push on those environmental boundaries, but also thinking about like how do you shift mindsets and how do you shift power dynamics, right? So we we also say you know really go into root causes as opposed to, you know, trying to change the symptoms and that kind of stuff. So, you know, a lot of what we're trying to figure out these days is, you know, how do we how do we think about change in a way that our supporters can be part of that and see agency and in actually influencing the outcome with us. Um, and that's a different way of, of driving change than being kind of a small, you know, smoky room conversation with corporate contact type stuff to try to really influence them or, or push them in a specific direction. Um, so yeah, again, a lot of what we're trying to do is we, we, we went from, if I say broadly, we thought we'd be on offense to trying to play defense and prevent rollbacks, which is not been, there've been so many rollbacks, just, you know, 20, 30 years of progress rolled back in two or three years. Really? Um, yeah, I mean the, 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 yeah, the, the, the things that have been rolled back EPA and, and just broadly, all the policies that have really been pushed back has been pretty, um, really depressing. And, and so again, we're trying to do what we can to, to minimize that where possible. I mean, I think we're also trying to build but momentum. What, what kind of power, or, yeah, what kind of power do you have? And is it something that, you know, if somebody else gets elected, you can quickly restore it back or is it really just like gone? Yeah, it, it's a ver- it's a really mixed bag, um, and and I think it depends on the the policies in question. It depends on you know how you want things to move, whether you're going for executive orders or whether you're something that's more more broad and maybe a bit um, stickier. We certainly are working with groups to say you know if there is um, you know a, an outcome in the election that. Uh, goes uh, the direction that I personally would want it to go, that there's a conversation about what are the executive orders that should go in the first 100 days or the, even the first 10 days, you know what I mean? Like um, that that sort of stuff. Um, I, I think the, the other thing that I was going to say is part of it is also about, uh, it's about building kind of a, a network of supporters. And right now we are pushing on the, you know, within the concept of a Trump presidency, but the system is is bigger than Trump, right? So even if Trump is gone, there's still a lot of systemic things, as I was talking about, where we were kind of thinking about how do you change mind shifts and shift power that will still remain. And so what we're really trying to do is figure out how we can get people, again, feeling like they have some agency. People are really um, motivated to take action, and a lot of them just feel like they don't know what to do. And so we're trying to create lots of different ways for them to get in engaged and plug in in our work in a way that, you know, hopefully builds a, a group of um, passionate supporters who then, regardless of the outcome of the election, are, are going to keep going and keep pushing. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it. Uh, there's uh, a book about kind of how power shifting and, and kind of how people are interacting with institutions and, and how that's different. Um, and, you know, within there, they talk about that oftentimes it's kind of the the journey becomes more important than the original goal right it's like how are you building that power and and what is the group and how does that look over time and so i think that's a lot of 
uh, what we're trying to figure out. I mean, I think the, the tricky part is also within that. If you want to empower people to do things, often they need to have more agency in decision making than organizations traditionally have want, right? Like used to be, we'd say, okay, you do these seven things. That's what we want you to do. And that's not really most folks want now. They want to have more agency and self-determination. So there's a, there's a balance in there when we're thinking about what are the outcomes that we think uh, are important and what are the roles for our supporters within that? And then how do you have a conversation for them if they say, actually, I don't have any interest in doing that, but what about this thing slightly over here? So you actually said uh, you covered something that really triggered me. A lot of people don't know what to do. You actually are on senior management creating like structures. So what is the structure that you created for somebody you know, coming off the street wants to do some change. How do you clearly give them something to do and understand what can change the conversation towards obviously a better climate? Yeah, it's um, it's complicated. I, I think you know a big a big like, thing. Do you for have us... an education platform? Do you have like a, a, a website and then it says, do you want to be a volunteer? in climate, do this, do you want to be a policy change maker? Like, wh- yeah. what do you guys do exactly? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we've done within that space is is moving towards more of a, a distributed model. And, and so it used to be very kind of one-way directional where, again, we'd say, hey, go do these seven things. This is what needs to happen. Um, and a, a lot of where we've invested over the past, you know, five years especially has been around uh, kind of more crowdsourcing, not crowdsourcing is not the right word, more collaborative tools, especially with our supporters and volunteers. So doing a lot of, you know, the way that it often would, would start is you either get an email or you get a text that says, hey, we're going to have a, a call on, you know, what's going on with climate next week. Please join the webcast. We might have our executive director or a key speaker on. Um, and then, you know, within that, we would have a number of asks for folks. So you have a pretty kind of light, easy easy ask, and then you want them to have the opportunity to do different things than that if, if they want to or if they're not even interested in that easy ask. Um, and then you're trying to support that. So you're really trying to build Can a you network. Give examples of those easy asks? So that yeah, so to... I mean, things like uh, there, there, there would typically be like there might be a petition, there might be a call your representative uh, you know, within our, we actually have a pretty big campaign on single use plastics. And so oftentimes there it's like, Hey, you can go do, you know, go to the supermarket and take pictures of things where you see ridiculous plastic usage. And you're going to put that on Instagram for instance, right? So there's, there's kind of a, a big span of things that we would do. And again, you're trying to give some of those easy lifts so that folks can get plugged in. And then you hope that over time they kind of expand. I mean, it's like any kind of funnel where, you know, you're going to have a lot of people who do that easier thing. And as you go to the more complicated steps, fewer and fewer folks will do that. Um, a lot of what we're working on right now is really thinking about how our, our volunteers or our supporters can actually grow that network themselves, right? So instead of me calling you and saying, hey, will you contact your congressman? I, my, my ask to you is, will you call five of your friends and ask those five friends to, to contact their congressman? Uh, our congresswoman. And so I think that's an example of where we're, we're starting to think about and, and push a bit more on, you know, what do paid staff do? What do supporters do? And what uh, what does that look like? It's also an area where a lot of our technology movement has happened where, again, like peer-to-peer texting um, and, and those sorts of tools are coming more into play where folks are actually texting with other people, talking to them about the issues, um, and, you know, in that instance, obviously they've got a script that they're starting from, but they're 
texting with you know someone else and so it it kind of can take on a, a life of, of its own within that context i uh i like that especially the instead of engaging one person you're engaging multiple people um i guess a lot of these things that you're saying uh, again i want to go deeper into the fundraising and more of the structure but i i want to understand the context behind it because the way you're describing it is you kind of enter Greenpeace and then suddenly within a year you're doing this and suddenly within two, three years you're like COO and, and suddenly you're, you know, you're just climbing up that ladder way faster than, than yeah. let's say somebody just jumped off, uh, I don't know, like some school and starting at Greenpeace. So clearly there is a lot of stuff and probably failures that were happening to that you pretty much learned from and then started implementing into Greenpeace. Uh, so I want to go back before Greenpeace and ask you what what were the top kind of failures that were happening mm. and what were the biggest learning lessons throughout your entire career from beginning like college to, to uh, before Greenpeace yeah. that really, you know, that stood out. You're definitely never doing that again. And and then, you know, that you learned a certain lesson from it. Yeah, that's a good one. Um I mean, I, I think one for me early on was learning that there's only so much that one person can do, right? And to really kind of scale and have more impact, whether that's in the corporate world or in the NGO world. For me, being a manager and a leader was a way that I felt like I could could do a lot more. Um, and, and so I think that that's not that pivot is not something that makes sense for everyone. Uh, but I think at first I really just tried to take on whatever I could myself, as opposed to looking to my peers, uh, the, the folks around me, uh, and, and really trying to figure out what is the boundary of what I can actually do and where do I need more than a person, right? So, so what happened exactly that you learned this lesson? Yeah. Um, or was it like multiple moments that came yeah, together? Yeah, I, I think it's just, you know, being in a consulting space where it's billable hours and, you know, bonus based on how many hours you work, everybody's starting point tendency coming in is to just do as much as they can do, right? Like, give me, I want another half a project. I want another. I'm doing four, five, six, that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think for me personally, it was also just getting to the point where I was working all the time. Like, especially when I first started consulting, I was traveling pretty much 100%, so I was gone every week. Um, and then, you know, flying home on Fridays and, and oftentimes working on the weekend. And like, that is just not sustainable for anyone. So I think it's kind of a mixture of like, you know, starting to have a feel for that work-life balance and, and what does that look like? And, and, and just you, you, knowing that you as an individual can only do so much, right? And so, uh, actually the, the, the organization I'm talking about, we, we reached a point much later when I came back where it was like, you could have two projects and that was kind of max, right? Maybe something little to the side, but really kind of putting some structure around but that because what happened, are, what happened? Like, were people actually burning out, ending up in hospitals? Like, what is it? How did you find it out? And how did the company decide, no, this is the max, like what was happening? Yeah, you know, I wasn't in leadership there, so I don't know specifically what was happening. I know people are certainly fried. I know there was time where I was fried. And, you know, a lot of folks would, um, you know, reach a point where a project doesn't go as well, right? And, and sometimes that's 
out of your control and that's just the project itself and sometimes that's because people actually need a break right and so we were definitely or, or myself personally i was in the tendency of as soon as i started to see the close of that first project i was coming to you know the leadership and saying hey what's next and and really kind of interested to jump to that next thing very quickly with with no downtime between because downtime was not billable and therefore you know it doesn't flow through all the bonus and all that kind of stuff um so you know, I, I, I think I also had a moment where um, when I first met my wife and partner, we actually went to Africa for, I think it was about six weeks. And it was the first time since I had really started working that I didn't have internet and therefore I could not check email for a week and a half. And so it felt like a month long vacation, right? Like that week and a half felt, because I, I realized in that moment by still checking in, just making sure stuff's going, my brain's still there and I'm not actually disconnecting. Um, and, and so I think that that was definitely a moment for me where, you know, that's not a that that wasn't a, you know, something that that I screwed up. But that was definitely a moment that kind of fed into that concept of you got to take the time to step back because it just can't be an indefinite churn and drive. I mean, I think it's especially when when I think about the folks that you're working with in startups where it's like, there's always something that needs to be done. There's always, you know, a new idea. There's always another hat you can put on that kind of stuff. And especially when, when you feel really passionate about the work and strongly about the work, I think it's hard to draw that line. Um, and, and I think that's been something that's been hard for me at Greenpeace, honestly, is because I got to the point where with the consulting, I was, uh, I, I would say I was probably pretty bored, even though there was tons of stuff going on and I had multiple projects and teams and, and complex stuff that at one point fulfilled me. I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, interested and so I wasn't at my best. And then when I got to Greenpeace, it was like, it was like, it was just a fundamental shift for me. And, and it didn't feel like work for, for a long time. Um, and that can be tricky too, because, you know, th then why, why take a break? It feels good. It doesn't feel like work. Why have a boundary with work? So, um, you know, I, I think that's part of it. So in, in what, terms of what was your answer to that question? You were asking a question which is actually really necessary to ask. So why should you take a break if it doesn't feel like work? Yeah, I mean, I, I think even though it doesn't feel like work, you are just like there's a battery there. You know what I mean? And if you don't take the time to recharge that battery in some way, shape or form, eventually you're going to get that exclamation point and you're going to be out of battery. Um, and so, you know, there was a time where for me that was like massage therapy. Uh, now it's yoga and acupuncture and really find the space for that. I mean, that's been part of the adjustment adjustment for me within COVID is I can't, you know, I'm not going to get my acupuncture right now, whereas that had become something that was really key in terms of my maintenance and that kind of stuff. So um, you were doing yoga and acupuncture every day or every week? No, I mean, it, you know, as, as with anyone, it, it, it varies up and down. For me, the um, yoga a couple times a week and the acupuncture is probably once a month. Uh, if, if things are going well, I think that's, you know, ideal for me. How did you end up with yoga and acupuncture to handle your stress? Well, uh, from all the things, why not, you know, do sports or something? How did you yeah. end up with yoga? Yeah, yeah, I, I love to exercise. I am very inflexible. And from sitting at a desk all day, everything just gets really tight. I get migraines. And actually, a lot of that has to do with just how wound up and tight I am. And so the exercise helps with stress relief, but it doesn't release that in the same way for me. My, uh, I, I know other folks that the yoga doesn't work for them. I think everybody has to kind of search out their own thing of what is that mix. But yeah, for me, it's just that my body gets so, so naturally wound tightly. And that has an impact, you know, mentally, uh, eventually. 
Uh, and then the acupuncture, I was having some some problems with kind of numbness in, in fingers and toes, and I tried it to, to help with that, and it was kind of like a revelation in terms of how I felt for three to four days after that. And so I was like, wow, I'm going to keep doing this, even though the, the fingers and toes stuff had kind of gone away. That has become, like I said, basically replaced massage therapy as the 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 thing that I know I need to just kind of release it. I don't, you know, it, it, there's there, again, I know people who have done it, hate it, don't ever want to do it again. Right. Like, I think it's I think it's different for everybody. I think you got to find what works for you. I uh, I love that you ended up with those. Do you do do you do sports in the meantime as well, or do you go to the gym while doing you know? Yeah, well? I, I used to do the sports a lot uh, before I had my son, and now it's more of you know messing around with him on the sports. So you know he's what kind into, of sports are we talking about? Basketball. He football? he's into soccer or uh, football and and basketball. He also does swimming. So I I'm not a swimmer, but you know he 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 does swimming. That's actually the first sport that he's been able to get back to post-covid right now which has had a really positive impact on him because how old Uh, is your son right now he's eight okay yeah but yeah basketball he loves basketball so that was another thing we had to get a a basketball hoop at the house because we weren't allowing him to go to the playground because of the covid stuff um and so he's got that and then soccer's kind of in the backyard that's that's those are usually his three he tried baseball but his baseball is so tough they're so little stimulation like if you're in right field he literally at one point was out there goofing off and meditating and so that was um, <laughs> i can imagine that yeah <laughs> so that was that was not working he needs that more consistent stimulation maybe off topic but how is soccer perceived in, in america right now yeah it, it's evolving i mean i think especially you know for me i'm from the country we did not have we didn't have soccer when i was growing up and uh i have uh a close friend who I lived with for a long time who's uh, Palestinian. And so that's when I got introduced to World Cup, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. And so I have, you know, over time picked it up a bit more. Uh, but then to have my son really get into it and, and where we are in Northern Virginia, it's pretty pretty consistent and pretty uh, developed. And so the, everybody, all the kids kind of do soccer here. Um, and so I, I think it's definitely shifting. I mean, I think it's always interesting of... You know, would it ever become as big as some of the other sports? I, I think that's complicated because of the foothold that, you know, American football has. But also there's a lot of, you know, conversations about concussions and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I was and just so that, about to shifting. say, it's really becoming a conversation right now. It is. At uh, what's happening with these NFL players. And, yeah. and then if you compare that to basketball or soccer, like you're not talking about injuries like that. These people live happy lives, and especially right. with soccer, you're not hitting anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, our our he he's not always happy about this, but our son does not have the option to play American football because we are not comfortable with it. Yeah, I mean, I can totally. I mean, I used to play rugby, and um, yep. and we we can we used to look at American football and think why all that padding was necessary right. because if you have all that padding. I mean, with rugby, you already don't hold back. But, you know, right. if it hurts, at least you can, you know, dial it back a little bit. Right. Um, and I think the statistics also say that rugby is a bit, like, down the line, maybe less of these concussion problems. than Right. Than, but it's really interesting. Um, but, okay, that was a little bit off topic. We were talking about um, your past and the learning lessons that you had. And I think maybe what I'm still missing is I would love to hear like a proper story. Obviously, you, yeah. you, 
you covered work-life balance and stuff like that. Yep. But that still doesn't explain to me why you were going through these ranks so crazy fast. Um, yeah. There, like, there must have been certain projects that you did that really taught you... I mean, when I go into an organization, and obviously my expertise would be more into the marketing side, and I would look at the systems there and some inefficiencies, and I'd be like, hey, why don't you do this? And these are the steps to get this rolling out within a week. Yeah. Um, so so obviously you were in data, but COO, CFO things has not that much to do. I mean, in this... Yeah kind of data interpretation, but the actions that you take to downsize an office and stuff like that, that has yeah. nothing to do with data. Yep. So how did you learn those skills? Yeah, I, I think I have, you know, part of it is in the consulting world, you know, I started out in healthcare and when I pivoted into consulting, I was kind of focused on healthcare. And then eventually once, once I got good at consulting, I would go in any organization that we had, you know, I've been in insurance, um, I actually did a, 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 we had a project at a National Basketball Association, um, all the way to kind of Audi and Volkswagen, eventually in terms of kind of supply chain and that kind of stuff. So, so I think being able to. So wait, what were you doing with the NBA and Audi and Volkswagen? You went into there and what did you do? Yeah. So, so it, it was around a, a multi-dimensional database. And so think of it as like a really slick excel pivot table right whereas you see a pivot table will have this you know you could line as a cube is what we would call it and so it was typically moving something from excel or another platform into this platform um, and so to do that you had to understand what they were trying to achieve from a business perspective what was important within that um, what, what were they interested in improving and then you also had to just kind of migrate it over and, and replicate stuff um, so, you know, part of it is just kind of being exposed to lots of different things. And as you said, being able to come in and, and kind of get up to speed and take a look and ask questions about, well, why are you doing it that way? If you change this thing, I think it'd be a bit more effective or efficient um, or, you know, really pushing on some of the assumptions that people have within their model because it's been there for 10 years, five years, whatever it is, and changing things within that way. So I think all those things were, were relevant, as I kind of talked about earlier, just kind of pushing and asking the why question. I, I think the other thing I would say is the moment in time at Greenpeace, my experience in terms of that more strategic finance, being comfortable with numbers, um, having a project management background, being able to take something big and kind of complex, turn that into a, we're going to do these 85 things to do this process. These are the first five. This is, you know, just kind of standard project management stuff was, was also something that was uh, not common in a lot of staff for us. Uh, and then just the fact that we had some, some uh, stress in terms of finances all those things together are, are really what it was. So, so I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, honestly having an opportunity, being in the right place at the right time, being able to come in and understand the organization and then blend that with my background in terms of specifically finance technology. And then, you know, the MBA obviously gives you a little bit of lots of different things. And so I think I was very comfortable uh, talking broadly at that level. And then also just was very comfortable when we need to bring in other experts to help us do the thing. Uh, and depending on my team, right? So when we did the facilities transition, I have a facilities manager who really, 
you know, did the ins and outs of that and, and made it happen on the ground. My, my role was, you know, up here saying, hey, let's talk about this. What does it look like to do that? And then kind of tracking and, and understanding where we're at in terms of actually getting it done. Uh, so, so I think it's, I think it's a few different things, but I, I, I think it is, you know, I've, I've had a lot of opportunity to see a lot of different places and, and business models and that kind of stuff. And so I think that helps just kind of broadly in terms of being able to come in and understand Greenpeace as a complete organization, like as, as any, as most organizations, we have a lot of silos. And so we still have folks who, you know, don't understand how the fundraising side of the shop works because that's not what they do. They're over here in, you know, the program side or, you know, they're, they're, they're on the legal team or whatever that may be. And so for me being kind of broader in experience meant that I was able to kind of step into those different roles and, and paint a more complete picture of how the organization worked overall. And also, you know, with senior leadership push on how do we improve things within that context? So do you recommend um, young people to go into consulting? Because it sounds to me, and you're not the first one um, on our podcast who's mentioned that. Uh, I think we published a couple of days ago um, the the global head of strategy for the North Face, and he also started, I think, at Unilever. Mm -hmm. And the same story kind of pops up. There are so many projects. You learn how an organization works. Do you recommend to young people to do that? Or do you recommend that they go straight to an organization that they want to work at already, like Greenpeace? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I, I think it really depends on the person and what they're looking for, right? Like, so for me, I also... You know, the the fact that every six to 12 months you got a new thing thrown at you to figure out was really good for me where I need to be interested. Um, and, and so I have a tendency if I'm doing the same thing over time, at least prior to the consulting, that I, I wouldn't be as engaged. I wouldn't want to work on it as much. And so for me, uh, that dynamic was a big part of it. Uh, I, I think also like you're working with people a lot and, and so I'm, I'm kind of closer to introverted on the, on the spectrum than extrovert, but I, I'm able to be effective and, and I'm pretty good at, you know, building relationships and getting to know people. And honestly, a lot of consulting is understanding your, your stakeholders, your audience, right? What do they need? What are the things that they need to be successful? And then figuring out what it takes for you to give those things to them. So, so I think if, if those sorts of things are interesting to people, I think absolutely. I think it, it, it certainly gives you an opportunity to, you know, interact with a lot of different organizations um, and, and kind of see different things. I would say at the same time, I was very specific to one technology. And actually one of the reasons that I took the jump to Greenpeace is because I was excited that I was the overall data and analytics manager as opposed to just working on that one technology. So I think every consulting job is a little bit different. Um, and, and I think good for folks to reflect on kind of what, what they feel at that point, you know, where, where are you at in your life? Are you able to put in those really long hours that, you know, most consulting jobs have because you don't hire consultants as a, as a, you know, as a client, because you've got a super easy project that anybody can do. You usually hire consultants because either you don't know, or the timeline's ridiculous, or it's really hard and, and you need someone else. You know what I mean? So the, the expectations for consultants are usually pretty high in terms of why you're bringing those folks in. And so it is, um, you know, it, it's again, every, every job's a little bit different, but I think that's part of it too, right? Like you got to be in the right place, um, to go do that work. When I was traveling hundred percent, I mean, it, you, you can't, part of the reason why I want to get off the road is because I couldn't actually be in a meaningful relationship in that context, right? Like you're home a day a week, two days a week, like that's, 
you're not actually going to be able to have really strong relationships with the folks in that context. But for a number of years, it, it was okay and it worked. And, and again, I have a lot of learning and experience within that, that, that was positive for me. But I think, I think it'd be a little bit different for folks. I think it is good to dig a little bit deeper, right? Like consulting is kind of shiny, um, and, and, a, and a bright object. And, and so I think for some folks, that's great. And, and for others, you know, it may not be the best fit. I, the other thing I would say is every consulting organization is different too, right? Like you have really big shops, you have a lot smaller shops, subject matter, all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, it certainly gives you a lot of opportunities to see different organizations if you can find a place that fits for you and you're successful at it. Do you think um, that going through a consulting background makes you then a better entrepreneur? Because it sounds to me like you really learn the nitty gritty of every single organization. By the time you kind of finish consulting, you might actually be a really good entrepreneur because you know what to do and what not to do. I, I think it's probably a good foundation. I mean, I think, again, it would depend on the consulting role and, and how you know how aligned the things that you're really working on or, or learning would fit with whatever you know, you're trying to do within your business. Um, but I think it certainly can be. I, I mean, the, 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 the one thing that I realized in hindsight that I, I kind of took for granted in consulting was, uh, you know, in change management, we often talk about kind of the, the burning platform, like how do you create the initiative for people to move? Uh, as a consultant, typically the organization is already there and they really need this thing to happen. And so your job is to go do it successfully. And so it's been interesting for me to reflect in hindsight, trying to drive change in Greenpeace over the last seven years, where sometimes that, uh, you know, that, that need to move has been a part of the things that, that has been challenging for us to create, whereas a consultant typically that's built in because they're paying you, you know, top dollar to come and do that thing that, as I said, is really hard or they don't know how to do. And so the, the, that, that's built in in a different way. I, uh, it really shapes uh, kind of how you ended up um, doing what you do at Greenpeace. And I kind of understand now also why you started with that data uh, CRM project before you started doing everything else. What was it um, within Greenpeace that people started trusting you more, giving you higher positions, or was it just those openings were there and you took them? Yeah, I, I think it, you know, as with anything, results you know, speaks volumes. And so we did kind of land the CRM and have a clear view and a vision on what that looked like. Um, you know, coming in from the corporate world to an NGO is not always an easy thing. And so you had to build relationships and get to know folks. And, and as you said, get them to trust you. And so I think it was, you know, being authentic and being honest with folks. Um, always, you know, similar to what I was saying, like, understanding what people needed and finding ways where you could help them, right? So even though the big focus was on CRM, there's always kind of little requests that come to the side to say, hey, I know you guys are busy and you're not supposed to do this, but I need this kind of, you know, small thing. Um, and, and so finding ways to kind of build up some of that political goodwill and, and political capital within the organization, I think, is always part of it. Um, and, and again, I think it was understanding what the organization needed and, and seeing that I could fill some of those gaps, but then you got to go do it. You know what I mean? Like you've got to actually be successful in, in moving those things forward. Um, and, and then I, I think just kind of finally the, the fact that I did have more of a kind of cross organizational or cross functional, uh, orientation from the start was definitely something that we, as an organization we were trying to push more of. And so I think that was a big part of it as well. What were the main, you kind of covered it, but what were the 
main reasons, uh, the main differences between corporate and NGO? Because you said, I went from corporate to NGO and there was this kind of a adjustment period. Yeah. What, what, what did you learn? What was different? How did it interact differently? Yeah, I, the, I think there's, a, honestly, I think there's a lot of similarities when you when you get down to it. But, you know, the, the number one, uh, especially for me as a, as a data guy, the, the number one thing that was a little bit different is it wasn't always clear exactly what the goal was. Right. In the corporate world, you focus on dollars at pr- primarily, right? Like you look and say, does, does this work? Um, are we bringing in income based on this thing? Um, and sometimes that's something that we're looking at, you know, in, in the NGO world. And sometimes it's less that that's not what we're looking at. Um, so what and, do you look at then? Yeah, I mean, it, it really, again, varies depending on the conversation, the campaign. One of my earliest uh I don't know if it was an aha moment, but a little bit of an uh-oh moment. I was meeting with the program team. We had put into place a pilot of a social listening software. Uh, and so I was trying to figure out how we could create the story that that software had a big impact on winning the campaign. And therefore, I could get budget money for it permanently in the next cycle. And so I went to the campaign team and asked them, you know, how, how will we, how can we prove this has been successful? And, and his, his answer was, we'll know it's successful when we win the campaign. And I was like, oh, well that, (laughs) so that, that was, that was for me a a place where I realized that the way that I thought about things in terms of kind of KPIs, measurement, all that stuff was not going to be quite as straight ahead. Right. So, so typically you could look and again, you could look at dollars and cents, you could look at ROI, you could look at those kinds of things. Um, and that wasn't always going to be the case in, in this space. Um, and, and you know, I, that, that's, everybody laughed and that's an oversimplification, right? There's obviously steps along the way that you're trying to get, um, and you, you have outcomes along, along that, but it is certainly harder to measure, uh, within the, the program side of our work, uh, than, you know, what I was used to again in the corporate world. And that doesn't mean we haven't figured it out. That doesn't mean we don't make progress. Uh, but, you know, you, you measure things like, you know, how many people are taking action with you. Uh, you measure things in terms of, you know, a lot of times we're, we're trying to shift the Overton window in terms of what's the conversation that's actually going on. And we see ourselves as trying to push that window. Um, and so, you know, we will monitor, you know, traditional media, social media, that kind of stuff and try to understand things in that way, uh, which is, you know, not dissimilar than, than what a lot of corporates are doing these days. Um, but, but I think that 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 was one big difference uh, was it, it wasn't always quite as straight ahead to, to get at that. Um, I, I think similarly, the construct of uh, I, my, my prior fundraising director who just retired had a, a marketing background. And, and when he first got there, he said, what's the product, right? Like we were, we're trying to figure out what is the, because, you know, even though it's a, it's an NGO, you are trying to get people to engage with something in some way. And so, you know, we say supporters instead of customers, but the construct of you're trying to get someone interested, excited about what you're doing, and you're trying to get them to opt in, select, whatever that is, that's still there. Uh, most of my peers probably wouldn't articulate it that way, but I think, you know, con- con- construct wise, we're, we're still trying to, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, create uh, campaigns and initiatives that people get excited about to see themselves in with some agency and want to be a part of and, and opt in. Right. So, so again, not quite as clean in terms of, you know, the way that you might think about it from a corporate perspective, but it's still there. And at the end of the day, we have to understand 
those supporters. We have to understand the different audiences and, and what appeals to this group over here is not going to appeal to that group over there. And we have to think about that and take that into account as well. Um, what's really different? I mean, the, like the maybe more aha moments that you had. I know uh, we had um, uh, the global head of the WWF on for marketing and he had a couple of aha moments because uh, yeah. he came also from just uh, selling his startup into this. Right. So I can imagine you had probably a couple of these aha moments. Yeah, I think I think probably the biggest one for me was, you know, just is not enough structure to get the job done. Right. Like I come from very much process, big projects, big project plan, big teams. We're going to do this, this or this. Um, and even, you know, at some of my stops having these big kind of um, um, structures that we followed to move code around, for instance, where it would take you two hours to write the code and it would take you three weeks to get the code into production. And so, you know, being a campaigning organization, there's much more of a, uh, a desire for responsiveness with, within guardrails. But uh, I think that was the, especially when I got to the COO and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to do, you know, these things, uh, realizing that the appetite there was, was needed to be adjusted because folks would, would lean in with you and have those conversations if they understood the, the reason, the value, the risk, but they only wanted what it took to make sure we were doing it in the right way. We didn't want, you know, process for the sake of process. And, and I think that's tricky for an organization that's almost 50 years. You got lots of stuff that builds up and, and we have lots of, you know, policies and process and stuff like that where somebody made a mistake 20 years ago. We put a policy in place because of that and that, you know, impacts things in different ways. So, so I think that has... has I think that's probably a good approach generally, but that was something that was a bit different for me in terms of the nonprofit space and especially trying to be in the COO where, you know, for instance, risk management and that kind of stuff. It's like we're, we're taking some risks intentionally that corporations would never do. Um, and, and so that is a that's a different kind of conversation. And, and you have to right size the structure and process to go with it. At the same time, you know, we don't want to make mistakes because we are. You know, you got to take care of the organization, make sure all those kind of safety, uh, legal, all those kind of things are there. And so there is some level of structure and process that you need. And, and finding that sweet spot uh, is is a bit different here than in, in the other places I've been at before. And then I think the other thing, I, I don't know if this really counts as an aha moment, but that really anchoring on finding something that you're interested in and that will really change the way that you show up on a daily basis and, and really drive your effectiveness and your success. So actually to your question earlier about why, you know, was I able to move up? I think a lot of it was just that, like I was so excited to come to work um, and it just felt like fun. Like I, I just wanted to do it. Um, and, and so I think that was, I kind of had that as a construct, which is part of why I took the leap, but to actually experience it and see that, I think that did have a lot to do with uh, the fact that I was able to move up uh, in the way that I did. I'm actually um, interested to kind of move on to, to one of the questions that I had for you, which is from a more senior level, um, are you somehow looking over the vision of recruitment? Are you somehow in charge of making the systems of that very efficient? How, I guess my question is, how do you guys get, you know, these volunteers or supporters and, and these full-time employees to be as motivated as you were when you first entered the organization? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we have an HR department. We call them people and culture uh, because it's a bit broader than traditional HR. And I've been really fortunate to have a really solid uh, individual there who's now in the COO role since I've stepped up. Um, and so I, I work hand in hand uh, with this this woman who's just fantastic. And, you know, I, I, I think it is uh, certainly uh, attracting and retaining talent is something that every organization has to think about, right? Um, and, and a lot of what we were still depending on was the Greenpeace brand and the fact that folks would just want to come here because it's green, Greenpeace. Um, and, and so we had to push a little bit, especially when we started trying to invest, for instance, in our digital team. And, you know, we're trying to drive more of this, you know, what a lot of organizations who are digitally native just naturally do. And so trying to convince people, for instance, who know how to do that really well to come to this old organization that doesn't work that way can be pretty challenging. And so we had to push uh, and, and really kind of review compensation and, and try to be a bit more com competitive within the market itself uh, than we had been at traditionally based on, again, just kind of counting on people want to come work at Greenpeace because it's this incredible brand and place to be and, um, you know, great on the resume, all those kinds of things. So, so I think that's certainly been a big part of it to go with that has been a constant push on management, effectiveness of management. And we have, you know, really inconsistent management still, you know, we still have more, it, it varies more than we would like based on who your manager is, what your experience is. Um, and so I think those two things together have been the main kind of push um, in terms of, you know, talent. The other thing is, you know, really thinking about justice and equity. Uh, and w what does it look like? What's the mix for us in terms of Greenpeace? You know, how, what do we want the organization to look like? Uh, especially as you start talking about kind of interacting with supporters and who are you working with, you know, most of the folks that are impacted by climate change are, you know, low income, people of color, that kind of stuff. And so if you get a lot of people that look like me uh, in the organization, that's a different conversation than if you have people that actually know those communities are part of those communities and are there. So I think that's another huge part uh, of, of our conversation in terms of how we're thinking about staff at the organization and the change that you're trying to make, you know, one hire at a time. Actually, uh, also wanted to cover. You c briefly mentioned it, uh, but the digi digital teams and stuff like that, and also I'm assuming digital volunteers. How do you guys make sure that they are productive? Do you guys yeah. use software? Do you give them a budget to buy, I don't know, standing desks, or <laughs> what do you guys do? Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's a little bit different uh, depending on the project. Uh, you know, certainly for the volunteers, a lot of what we're doing is trying to make sure we have the platforms centrally in terms of technology so that they can can work. So uh, we, a little bit embarrassed to say, have just started moving into Slack. And so there's a Slack community mm -hmm. with our volunteers where we're interacting there um, and have just started rolling that out internally as well right now. So, you know, that's one way where, where folks are there. So, so I would say in terms of investment, it's more about um, you know, hiring the right people on the staff side who know how to do this in a way that's different than the way that we've done it before. Make sure that, you know, they do have budgets to invest and do what they need to do. A lot of that is technology um, because the concept for us and part of our shift is we used to be more face to face, right? Like you'd have someone in um, Portland, for instance, who would have a, a group of volunteers they would interact directly with uh, more and more. We're trying to scale, you know, via technology and, and digitally. So making sure that, you um, 
you know, the, the webcast and that kind of stuff is, is tight. Like we actually moved to Zoom about a year ago from another kind of internal uh, video conferencing technology that we have where Zoom is a lot better. Uh, the peer-to-peer texting, which we've talked about, um, and, and those kinds of things. So it, there's also kind of the concept of, uh, again, volunteer to volunteer. So how do you let volunteers know about other events that volunteers are doing? So we've got a few different ways that we've tried to do that over the years. But it, it's primarily been about having the right staff and, and ensuring those staff can get the technology that they feel like they need to, to interact with the supporters in that way. So I, I'm hearing Zoom, Slack, are there any other technologies that could be interesting to explore? Yeah, we use, we have a tech, the, the peer-to-peer texting platform changed recently, and I don't know the name off the top of my head, but that's another big one. Um, you know, on the CRM side, we move into Salesforce and, and we use uh, every action for our digital CRM, which plugs in with a lot of different tools because it, it also connects to the, uh, the, the tools that some of the, the Democratic Party uses. Um, and, you know, social monitoring, we use TalkWalker globally. We've had a few different tools uh, domestically that we look there. What's the name of the tool that we use for media? Cision, maybe, as what we use to kind of monitor the traditional media platforms. Um, I mentioned Looker, so we were on Looker. We just moving to Tableau within this kind of migration that, that we just kind of went with. Wait, um, what does Tableau do again? Tableau is reporting analytics, business intelligence, so that's kind of the front end of our, our data warehouse, basically. And it, it uh, Looker is... is best known for kind of self-service, right? So having a lot more freedom for for um, uh, users to kind of do their own thing, which I was, you know, I absolutely loved it the first time that I saw it as in a very selfish way. Tableau does a lot of that and is also uh, a bit, you know, more solid on, on the kind of overall reporting and how you interact with that kind of stuff. So both those are both great uh, platforms and, and, and things that we've been really happy with in terms of the, the reporting and the front end stuff. I love it. Um, okay, so now, actually, the question I wanted to ask an hour ago, the fundraising stuff. Um, I think it's also the heart and soul of, uh, of an, a charity organization. I think it's important to cover because there are a lot of charities much smaller than Greenpeace that are starting. And, and I feel like sometimes they really don't understand and can't figure out what you actually should be doing. Um, to get in oxygen so that your organization can actually give back. Um, so I would love to know from your perspective, maybe when you started out as fundraising director to you know your position now and how you view that or how you interact with it. Um, and what, yeah, can you maybe explain what is actually happening? You briefly covered it already. Um, you have digital that you are rolling out, you said. There's the letters and everything. How do you ensure, how do you track it? How do you ensure that you maximize the, the, the profit, obviously, the, the mm-hmm. donations that you can give back? Um, can you kind of give a, a brief story of yeah. the one-on-one on how to start? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the first part I would say is back, people have to be excited about what you're doing, right? It's always easier to ask for money if people are excited about what you're doing. So it's, it's really, when it works best, I think there's a strong connection between the programs out of the house, the work that's actually going out there and your fundraising teams. And people are thinking intentionally about how those things go together, where you work in and ask, how you're 
using moments of uh, attention and what is the kind of mixture of, let's say, advocacy ask versus fundraising ask. So I think that's first and foremost, the, the, the most that it can be tied to the other things that, that you're doing already. Um, and that really drives the excitement. That's just going to make it all a lot easier. Um, for us, we, we really, um, again, we, we focus on those smaller individual monthly donors. Um, and the reason for that is we're, we're really looking at, I would say, well, two, two metrics, kind of ROI, but also break even, right? Like how long does it take for the investment to come back to us that it takes to bring a donor in? And the way that our model works and, and has been um, successful is that we've found ways where those monthly donors retain long enough that they are actually worth more over their lifetime than you know the, the bigger gift that we might get right now. So for instance, you know, if, if you give us $100 on, on the website today and it's a one-time gift, that's great and we will take that. But if we can you know, get you in at $20 a month and you're excited about what we're doing, you may stay with us for five, six, 10, 20 years. And then the value of that is much larger than that $100 and gives us a, a base of operations that we can count on. We've been doing that for so long. We have, you know, lots of models about attrition, how, how many donors fall off every month. Uh, and so we can, we can model based on, you know, can new you people. share some, some like basic numbers? Like what is an average of how long somebody stays? What is an average of a donation? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's really variable organization to organization. I mean, for us, um, you know, our, our average monthly gift for those monthly donors is it depends on the channel that they come in through, but anywhere from like 19 to $22. Um, and we usually, uh, you know, it, it really varies in terms of how long folks stick. But generally, if they make it past the first three months, they're probably going to stick around for a couple of years at least. A couple and, of years? I yeah. They would and, and, off after like six months or something. Yeah. It, again, it really... It really depends on what's going on in the organization. Are they engaged in what you're doing, right? So that's also the complicated part, right? Like we're, we're like any organization, we're trying to pivot and respond to what's happening in the outside world. And so sometimes they may come in on, you know, a, a specific uh, forest conversation about something that's going on in the Amazon. And that may not be something that we're working on or talking about next year. And so hard to retain that person on that specific issue you know, often what we're also looking for is, is there kind of overlap between our issues and our conversations where someone comes in, for instance, on plastics um, and then, you know, gets interested in, in climate as kind of another step. And then you've got two, two channels or two streams that they're in and, and kind of working with you. Um, the, the, the other thing is, that, you know, it's always we're looking at break even. And so the, the, as with any organization, the, the lower cost to get folks in means that you're going to get that break even sooner. And so that's why, you know, digital for us is, you know, where we're trying to invest and bring as many of those monthly donors through because that's the lowest cost to acquire uh, on average as compared to, say, like a telemarketing where we go and get leads, get your contact information, and then somebody calls you on the phone and we try to convert you that way. Can, so, can I ask what you guys then do on digital? Um, the one campaign that really sticks with me because it went viral was the one from, uh, I think it was the founder of Charity Water or something like that. He made this entire documentary of 20 minutes. Do you guys do something similar like documentaries, Facebook ads or? Yeah. Or 
Yeah, yeah. It, it's a pretty broad spectrum. I mean, so we certainly do Facebook ads. That's how we do a lot of our lead generation. And, and that, you know, is very experimental and tries to be responsive based on what's going on in the news cycles right now. Um, also, again, when it works the best is where in our campaign content can align with that or, or, or kind of match to that. And so it's not just here's a Facebook ad, but there's a Facebook ad and then there's a, 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 a thread that you can introduce folks into. Um, and so a lot of what would be in the email is kind of what we were talking about earlier, like, hey, join the webcast for climate next week. You know, that might be the first thing. Or here's a petition for, uh, for instance, last year Target was, was one of the organizations that we were pushing around plastics. And so there was like sign this petition for Target to get plastic out of their stores type stuff. Uh, so that, that's what a lot of that could be. Or it could be the patch through to, you know, contact your representative type stuff. That, that would often be in emails as well. well um, what does a petition do? I was always interested in that. I've signed a couple of petitions, but what do they actually do? Do they do something? Yeah, I mean, the, the concept is, you know, it used to be paper petitions, right? And people would take the boxes of the petitions to the office. And that's still the concept is that you take, you actually come to the representatives and say, you know, a million people want you to, you know, have a stronger oceans treaty or, you know, not let this pipeline go through. And, and so that's really the, the construct within the, the impact. I mean, I think the, to the conversation earlier, the question about do petitions, do people actually feel like petitions drive change or not? I think that's an evolving conversation and it's different for different, different folks at different kind of steps in their activism. Uh, but that's the short answer. It's, it's, you know, usually it's going somewhere to someone to indicate a volume of interest from the public uh, and, and a request for a specific outcome. No, clear. So, yeah, um, you were continuing to describe the, the different funnels that you guys have to attract uh, customers. Can you maybe also share how it's evolved from when you started to, to kind of now? Are you guys focusing more on digital? What are you exactly doing? And also, yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest shift is traditionally we've done a lot of face to face fundraising. So we have actually canvassers in the street who will, you know, you walk on the sidewalk, they'll come up to you and kind of talk to you about the work that we're doing and try to get you to join. Um, and that over time, we've had less of that based on kind of overall, you know, the, the cost and break even and that kind of stuff that we were talking about. And so we've pivoted to more actually going door to door. And some of that is visiting people. Wait, so people. you were talking about street is less uh, ROI positive than door to door? Yeah, be, because, and this is where it gets tricky, because the retention is much better door to door. So what actually happens on the street sometimes is people will give you their credit card just to get out of the conversation. And then they will cancel pretty quickly in that two to three month window. Whereas at the door you can always just close the door, no, you can't come in, etc. So when people actually convert uh, at door to door, they tend to retain better. Um, and so it's not cheaper in terms of acquisition, but the retention is so much better for us um, that that door to door has had, uh, it has a better break even and better LTV because of that. Wow, I had no idea. What, what was it about the data when did you discover that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was something that we were starting to push on when I first got here. We cheat a little bit because we pre-populate some of the door conversations with people who are lapsed. And so they have been a donor at some point in the past and are not right now. And so my, my prior fundraising director and I always just say this is actually their second commitment to the organization, which tends to be a bit stickier. So there's some of that uh, mixed in. And that's actually what started is we were trying to come up with 
the basically the volume to make that cost effective for somebody who was going out and and so you've got a mixture of what we would call lapsed owners who have been on the file before and then you've got some you know kind of colder colder doors that are just doors that they're they're adding into their routes as they go uh, two things there maybe even three things one do you still do that uh two um with the door-to-door, how do you guys recruit for those people who do the door-to-door? Because that's a pretty tough job. So do you guys use agencies? Do you actually recruit your own staff that does that? And then maybe the third thing that I wanted to ask is how does it happen now with Corona? Yeah. Yeah. So first, the first and the third are the same. Everything's paused right now because of Corona. Uh, just very quickly, we took all the canvassers off the streets because of safety um, and just you know didn't feel that it was right for them to be out in the streets. And so we're, we are still paused right now. Um, some organizations are starting to go back out. Some agencies are starting to go back out and we're not at the place yet where we think that makes when sense. When do you think you will be at that place? Yeah. I mean, it, it's an active conversation with our, our fundraising team, uh, right now. You know, I, I think, you know, we've assumed we'd try something next year. Uh, the question right now is, would we go sooner than that? Um, based on, the fact that other folks are starting to get out and what kind of results would be there. I mean, I think there is a, there's a fundamental kind of dynamic of does it, does it make sense for you to have your staff going face to face with people within the midst of a, a virus? And I think that's where we're pretty uncomfortable and think that it doesn't make sense. Um, and, and so, uh, that, that was, that's been the biggest impact, honestly, for us from, from the coronavirus is pausing that channel um, and taking those folks off the streets. Uh, can I know, just out of uh, interest, like in percentage-wise, how much are we speaking, uh, like that that impacts you per month? Yeah, I mean the the mix is probably twenty to thirty percent of new volume on an annual basis comes from the face-to-face. Wow, so it's, it's that's significant for us. So a lot of what we're looking at now is how can we, how much of that can we backfill with more investment in digital, more investment in telemarketing. That's that's the active conversation. Uh, and so, yeah, the question was, do you, before Corona, do the senior staff also do the door-to-door? Genuinely interested. And second, like, how do you recruit those people? Because I remember yeah. um, being in touch with a couple of agencies that do that for charities yep and they have a really big turnaround like every three months somebody quits and somebody yeah. else replaces them so do you guys you know delegate that to, to an agency do you guys do it internally yep yeah we've we've done it internally since i've been here we did a few pilots with agencies that just didn't work as well and therefore the you know the roi the break even all that stuff did not work um it's pretty much a constant conversation at every organization that does canvassing what that what that looks like um but but we have found for us uh it it has worked to have that kind of in-house and and that's what we've been successful with um i I think it will be an ongoing conversation about whether that continues to make sense or not again that's something we're always talking about what's that because as with any um outsourcing situation you know thinking about why you're outsourcing versus having it in-house and kind of weighing all those you know the 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 pros and the cons within that, like that, that should be a constant conversation. And so that is one for us. I think especially being in the moment where everybody's off the streets, it means that we need to think about it a little bit more intentionally right now. Um, and it, it is, it is high turnover. I mean, it's, it, it, you have a lot of folks who come through there. It's one, I, I would say it's probably one of the hardest jobs that we have. Senior staff, 
they, we would go out in more of a, um, not in a consistent way, right? Like sometimes we'll go out at one point really early on uh, when uh, right after I was fundraising director and we got the new fundraising director, we did an audit of the canvas. And so I went out to a few of the locations where we have folks and kind of went out with them within that context. But it's not something where we would go consistently as, as, as uh, senior staff. There's a specific team of, of folks that do that. And it is, I mean, honestly, I, they, the, especially after they've been there for a while, if they're successful at it, they can speak to our campaigns almost better than anyone else in the organization because that's what they have to do. They have to be able to talk to people and help them understand, again, get them excited and want, get them to, to want to be part of what we're doing. And so uh, it's a really hard job, lots of turnover, and the folks that are successful at it really understand the campaigns in a way that not, not everyone does. So I'm genuinely interested. So how do you recruit that volume to keep the turnaround happening? Yeah, I mean, it... it Every we we had uh, before uh, COVID, I think we were in twelve or thirteen different cities, and every city, it's it's almost like a little uh, startup, for lack of a better term, where there's you know people who run that office, and so they decide and and test and try different things. At one point, it was almost all through Craigslist ads, if, if you can believe that, <laughs> that people were just, you know, that was how it was happening. I mean, now we use some more of the, the standard sites and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of word of mouth, as with maybe uh, most uh, recruiting, the best people typically come word of mouth, right? So if somebody's doing it, they know what it's about. They say, I think you'd be really good at it and bring that person in. Those are the people that actually tend to stick the best. So that, that's also something where we've tried to incentivize that in, in different ways for those folks. Any tips for new charities who obviously need to find people to, to raise funds with together on where to start? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you got to, there's a few different ways to approach it, right? Like not every organization, you know, goes for the small donor model in the way that we do. Some organizations are very heavy foundations or, or government money. Um, and so I think first and foremost, talk to somebody who understands that context and can help you come up with kind of a game plan for, for how you think you want to put it together, right? Because it's, it's basically, it's a portfolio and you got to think about what you're doing um, and what you kind of need uh, and, and what's important, right? So to, to your point, the, the, having the in-house canvas comes with a lot of overhead um, and, and a lot of work for us as an organization, but it allows us this kind of uh, foundational, uh, um, kind of support that we can count on and project. And that's really important for us where we really value our independence uh, and, and that kind of stuff. So there, there's, a, there's an intentional choice between what we're doing out in the world and, and kind of our values as an organization and the way that we want the funding to flow in. Great. Um, yeah, so I would love to continue on this, um, the fundraising parts and maybe get... Again, you were talking about the other parts outside of digital and door-to-door -door now. What other things were you guys doing and exploring? What is working less um, and has evolved into better things? Yeah, telemarketing has also grown over the time that I've been here. It used to be that uh, we didn't do a lot of calling. Um, and then we tried like a once-a-year upgrade type thing where you call existing donors and try to get them to give more. Uh, which actually the people that do that tend to retain even better than the people that, you know, you, then, then kind of your base uh, retention. Again, they're committing to the organization in a different way. Uh, that moved to us doing that, I want to say, twice a year. 
and now we've reached the point where we have folks that are calling pretty much consistently. Like that's the way that we do a lot of our conversion for our digital ads. So it, it's a digital uh, ask to, to get your contact information and then that flows through to the telemarketing. So that has certainly um, grown a lot. And, and again, is something that we're looking at now to say, okay, how do we continue to think about that and, and push on that? What's the right uh, size for that as, as we're trying to backfill? Um, as, as we talked about kind of the other side of the house, you've got the, the high dollar donors. Um, we got, we do a little bit of foundations where we can because of the kind of corporate independence that's pretty limited in terms of foundations that actually work. It is like a pretty significant process that we have to go through to vet, uh, actually major donors and, and foundations. Um, and then there's what we would call planned giving, which is kind of legacies and that kind of stuff. And that's one where, um, specifically the, the, the legacies, it's really hard to predict. Um, and so you do the work to build the funnel and make sure people know that putting you in their will is an option, for instance, uh, but you, you, you really can't model that. And, and so you're, we're pretty conservative within that concept. So that is definitely something to think about, or like the, the, literally the, you know, think about someone over their, their lifetime and assume that, that, you know, maybe early on they don't have a lot of money and, and they're going to be engaged you know, with the organizations in non-financial ways, they reach a point where they're a donor and then over time as their wealth grows, you want to have that conversation with them a bit differently. Um, those programs are certainly, I would say, stable and, and always something where we're trying to figure out like what's the right mix of investment to, to grow them. Um, it, it, especially now with COVID, the market has such a big impact on, you know, high wealth individuals and what they have available that's discretionary. Um, so, so that's also an active conversation about, you know, what does that look like over time? Right now, we're just focused on, you know, talking to our, our donors, making sure the relationships are solid there. Um, people know what we're doing, right? Like there's another thing where you're trying to understand what are folks interested in and what are they fired up about so that you make sure that they understand uh, what we're doing. And, and especially if you know, for instance, that they're really fired up about climate, that they know about our climate work in an in intentional way. So those folks in, in those higher dollar programs get a bit higher touch, right? So we have specific team of, of officers that uh, have more kind of personal one-to-one -one relationships there. Do, do you advise um, like other charities uh, maybe starting out to focus on that bracket, like high net worth individuals, or is it better to go for monthly donors in that stage? Yeah, I, I think my answer would be it's good to have a mix overall, right? Like, it, it, again, it really depends on what you're doing and what, what, how you're running the organization, what's important to you, stability, that kind of stuff, right? Like some organizations focus almost, almost exclusively on foundations and government, um, and that means they can get a really big uh, drop that may set them up for two or three years, but then they may lose it in two or three years. And so our approach has been to have, you know, more of a mixed or balanced mix of, of fundraising with definite you know push on that individual uh donors i i think if you can pull off especially you know having some monthly donors in the mix at low cost acquisition through digital channels that's a good good stable way to go um but but again i think it's a little bit different depending on every organization where they're at and and you know again like what is the actual product and who's going to be interested in that yeah i agree um, I wanted to know maybe a little bit more about uh, you and your position right now being, you know, at the director's role now, which is, I think, the first time within Greenpeace that, that you are there. Is it so much different? Is it the same? How are you looking at some of the roles that you've had differently now? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that is definitely different is, you know, I have line management for our current fundraising director and our COO, but they have, you know, people under them that are doing everything. So you're kind of a step removed from being hands-on on specific things. Um, that's always the case in some way, shape, or form, but but that is certainly like my my kind of remit is, is around, you know, what do we have that's cross organizational projects and initiatives, um, and, and making sure that those things happen and then making sure that those two areas are, are moving forward. My executive director is a former campaigner. And so her expertise is really on the program side. And so what we complement each other in a lot of different ways, but that's kind of how we, uh, drew up the line management. She line manages program. I line manage those two departments. Uh, and, and together the five of us make up our senior management team now. Um, so that is, that is a bit different from having a specific department, right? So as COO, you're over the admin department, you still have kind of cross organizational responsibilities, but you have a specific department. Um, and as the program director, you certainly have a specific department. So the remit is, it's different in that way. Most of the work is more cross-functional and, uh, that's kind of the point, right? Like you, you got good people on your teams who can drive the very specific in their department. So what are we talking about as a leadership team? Uh, what are the things that are coming up? You know, how are we thinking about kind of broader strategy and that kind of stuff? So I've been plugged into those conversations in different ways, in different roles, just based on kind of where we are and where we've been. But to have that explicitly is definitely a change. Um, but it, it's, it, I've been working hand in hand with the executive director for the past four years across those roles. And so it's not a, it's not a dramatic change from um, what we've been doing before. If anything, it's that we have more and more strong people within the organization and especially in that senior management team who can take things and drive them, uh, which is really exciting. Do you feel like you've become more of a strategy and vision person compared to like, uh, you know, front lines person now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's always got to be a bit of a mix. Um, you know, I, I, I like the strategy and vision, but if, you, if you're not actually going and executing, that stuff doesn't actually matter for much. But um, you are so kind of away from the, the people. Absolutely. So how can you? Yeah, I mean, I, I am very dependent on other folks most of the time to, you know, really inform my thinking. And, and a lot of what I'm trying to do is kind of convene cross-functional groups. So we actually have one step below that senior management team, which we call the senior leadership team, which is the directors under each of those departments. And we're trying more and more to push decision-making and strategy within there because those folks are a bit closer even than my direct reports to what's actually going on. And if we can get that group of, it's about 15, to actually understand what each other are doing and really work together and own the direction of the organization, like that's gonna be way more effective than you know the five folks at the top being the ones who are really trying to push and drive. Do you feel like, because from the conversation we just had, I feel like I resonate quite a lot because I feel like it's very strategic and logical and everything you're more towards the introvert like me um, and and you've developed yourself into the role that you have right now do you feel like you've shifted um, your very logical approaches to a more visionary maybe logical formula way that you describe your vision or do you feel like you've had to change as a person to get to that point yeah I, I would say I think I'm trying to get there if that makes sense I mean I, I think it is, 
I had a conversation with our chief of staff. It was probably three years ago. I don't even remember what it was, but I remember her distinctly saying, you cannot systems your way out of this, right? Like that's not how you, <laughs> and so that, that is always my default. And so I've had to become very aware of that um, and really depend on some of my peers and my colleagues who do not think that way uh, and make sure that we're finding the right balance and that I am not just defaulting to that because that's what's easiest for me, but that we're figuring out uh, you know, the right way to articulate things. And then also, you know, again, I depend on larger groups and other folks oftentimes for, you know, w really working on internal comms, for instance, and how we roll the things out and, and make sure that it resonates with staff. And, you know, one of my one of my staff often reminds me that my experience in the organization is so different than most staff. And so where I'm like, oh, yeah, those three things naturally go together. A lot of people have never even heard about two of those three things. And so I think that is uh, it's good to have the right folks around you to, to help remind your perspective versus kind of who's your audience, right? Are you talking to somebody who's been here three months or are you talking to somebody who's been here 10 years and has heard this conversation six times? Because those are two really different conversations and ways that you need to articulate things. It's really interesting. We're kind of uh, going into one of the segments that we have, which is called the, the crash and burn segment. Uh, the crash and burn segment, I kind of like because... Um, the question is, the, what are your biggest failures that you didn't expect, and what did you learn from it? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think within my consulting, <clears throat> excuse me, within my consulting time, there was certainly projects that did not go well. Um, and, you know, I, I think the the, I mentioned the MBA earlier. Actually, that one did not end well. It, it, that did not feel good about you know where we landed. Um, I was not I was not as effective at getting that done as as I should have been. And I tried to reach out for help, but not in in hindsight, I realized not in the way that actually made it clear that I needed help and things were not okay. Right. And so you, you build up this reputation of being very successful in the organization. They trust you to be able to go do the thing on your own. And when you're kind of like, eh, not, you know, not, hey, I need this, I need that. And they're like, ah, oh, he's fine. Um, so, so really growing in terms of understanding how to ask for help, um, I, I think is a, is a key one. And, and I think that's always a hard one, right? Like I, I want to think I can do anything. Um, and, you know, I think even, even at Greenpeace along the way, I think I've probably stretched myself a bit further than I should have at some times, right? And that's a, a constant conversation that, uh, my, my ED and I have about like, how do we think about my plate and what's the right mixture and, you know, how do we actually get things done within that? And even if it feels like there's not an alternative to me doing something, sometimes it's just like, it's not going to, it's not going to be done well if I add it to everything else that I have. And so we have to come up with a different solution. Whereas, you know, my, my default response is still often just, just add it on, you know, to, to what we're doing and, and I'll kind of slug through and, and get it done. Um, so, so I think that's a big part of it. And, and, you know, as you move up into more senior positions, usually you don't get less responsibility, you usually get more responsibility. And so, you know, as we were talking about earlier with that kind of COO job description, if you look at most C-level job descriptions, no one is doing all that at once. And so you've got to be ruthless about prioritization, you know, goals, and really being focused on what is important to move the ball right now 
and, and what are the things that only I can do? That's one of the things that are, are we have uh, some, some coaches that have been working with us in leadership collectively, and that's one of the things that they really push, you know, only do the, do the things that only you can do, uh, and really using that as a check for yourself, that if that's not what you're doing, then you're probably not spinning your cycles in the right way. I'm genuinely interested in um, how you found out when to ask for help, and how did you, well, you explained how you learned it, but how do you use it now and, and when do you know to ask for help and what do you do now? Yeah, I mean, honestly, one of the things that I do, maybe this is unfair, I try to be pretty open with my peers and my supervisors that I will take on too much and that I need you to be a, a pushback on that at times when it feels like it can't possibly be that I can do everything that I'm trying to do, that, that, we, that we have that conversation. Um, the other thing that I've, I've tried to do is keep, you know, orient around goals, three, six, 12 months, perhaps, and really try to keep that, you know, in the weekly check-in docs, even keep, keep that in there so that when we're looking at everything that's going on, are they actually, do those things connect? Um, and, and if not, then there's probably some, some scope creep, let's say, in terms of what I'm actually working on. And maybe that's because I just need to focus or maybe that's because we need to, to offload some things. So I think that's a, that's a, that's another good way to, to check in on it. I, I mean, I have the, the ambition to do a better job myself of taking a step back every, you know, couple of weeks and really doing that in a more intentional way myself. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Great. We're moving on to uh, another segment that we have, uh, which is the considering impact talks, uh, the impact segment, the, the an impact story that we always ask. And the question is always, um, what is the project you worked on that had the biggest impact? This is probably a bit of a cop out, but, but I'll go there anyway. I mean, I think it's people, right? I think it's about the places where it's the teams that I've built, it's the individuals that I've worked with, and the places where you know, I've had really hard conversations with folks and they've grown from them. Uh, the places where, for instance, you know, someone on my team who was kind of interim in a role and we decided they weren't going to get the role even though they've been at the organization for a long time and to see the growth of that individual after that conversation. Um, you know, when I was in consulting several kind of junior level, we, we had a program where we started to bring in some kind of new college graduates and try to bring them up to speed. And I had, you know, two that came through with me that are still there and successful today. So I, so I think, you know, kind of back earlier to the connection about how you scale your impact, you scale your impact through others. Um, and so I think without a doubt, my impact is much larger via the teams, you know, via the data team at Greenpeace and the way that, you know, kind of worked through with that staff and position them to be able to take the step that they just got through those kind of things. I think, I think that's got to be the answer, right? In in leadership, your job is to scale through others, um, and and so I think that's got to be the right answer. Yeah, I like that because when we recruit people, one of the creeds that we have internally is we serve those who serve others, because through others we can uh, scale our impact much more. So the fact that you literally said those words was <laughs> very funny. But um, I like that. Um, the the last question actually that we have is uh, is more of a question not not related to business, which is what are you currently doing or learning um, that not related to business again that gives you energy? Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think two things. Like I'm reading a ton. Uh, there's a lot. You know, there's a lot of 
racial conversations going on right now, especially in the U.S., and so really trying to make sure I'm leaning into that. Um, and just Does Greenpeace of, actually have a role uh, within those conversations? Yeah, I mean, certainly we're, we're collaborating with other groups and, and supporting content and actually sharing some staff, especially around the movement for Black Lives in the past uh, month or so. There's been a lot of collaboration there. Uh, and, and, you know, that's kind of an ongoing conversation is how does that show up in our work, right? Because uh, fundamentally, when you, when you talk about, you know, environmental impacts, again, back to what I said earlier, like the, the, the impacts are greatest on the, the poorest and, and communities of color. And so if you're not, you know, addressing broader systemic things, uh, you're not actually going to have what, what, what you need in terms of solutions from a climate perspective. So yeah, the, the, those, the issues are, are interconnected. Um, and, and I think that is complicated for folks to understand at, at times, but, but absolutely we, we feel like we have a role within that and uh, make that an intentional part of our work. But yeah, so what, what are you doing currently that gives you, sorry, yeah. Unrelated, yeah, that so, gives you energy? <laughs> so I, again, as you said, non-work, I, I read a lot of sci-fi uh, to, to kind of take myself away because I've got to the point where if I'm reading, you know, books relative to work, when I try to go to bed, I won't go to sleep. I'll, I'll keep going. So try to do fiction at night. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time in the yard, um, you know, trying to grow some vegetables and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, spending time outside. I've been biking a decent amount more. Uh, I, I used to bike into the office, you know, a few times a week during the, the warm months had, had kind of fallen off of that. And so have taking the opportunity to get on the bike and you know spending time with my family right like I mean that's at the end of the day that's that's why I'm doing it all anyways and so making sure that um we're taking advantage of the time together because you know we often complain about not having the time together so even though we're all a little bit crazy right now you know try to be intentional about how we spend some time together and that that's a good thing what what kind of books are you reading now we constantly get that question asked yeah um I just finish there's a um there's a book about new york city again science fiction by uh uh oh the name is slipping for me right now um i think it's uh jemison is is her last name and and it's about kind of in, a, in an interesting way kind of the power of community so it's, it's very sci-fi but like the the communities the boroughs in new york actually give some of the power to these folks in this this kind of really interesting way that was a really good read what's um, the title again of that book it's called The City We Became. Um, and then what else do I have? Um, maybe something you'd advise for somebody listening in um, great books that influenced you, maybe? Yeah, I mean, this, this is very much work-related, but there's a book uh, called New Power uh, by Hyman and Thames are the author's names, and it talks about that kind of dynamic of shifting the way that people want to interact with organizations and how power actually works in the world right now, uh, which to me is one of the strongest articulations that I've read about how all this works and the way that we're thinking about change in the world and campaigns and people power, uh, kind of the, the mindsets and, and shifting power and that kind of stuff. I think that's a really solid one for anyone who is interested in that, that side of the conversation. I love it. I think uh, it's very relevant also to these times. And uh, I think considering we are past uh, the time mark, I am, uh, yeah, I just want to thank you. Super grateful that you got on, uh, shared your story. I learned a ton 
from how uh, a charity works and I guess I learned also how it should work because the mm. changes that you implemented um, it's very interesting to see and if I ever deal with a charity I definitely know what to look out for and things that can go wrong so really interesting very happy you jumped on and uh, yeah thank you so much yeah you're certainly welcome thanks for inviting me it was a lot of fun uh, before we close off, is there anything else you want to say to the people? Anything you want to say from Greenpeace on, from yourself, share something? Mm. You have the red carpet. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, again, data guy, so I'll start by, you know, understand your audience. And, and that can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts. Um, realize that you are also, you know, a stakeholder for yourself and figure out how to take care of yourself like we were talking about earlier. Um, and, you know, find, find your interest. Maybe it's not interest. Maybe there's a different way you describe that, but find something that, you know, you really feel passionate about. And I think that'll, uh, lead you on the road to success. If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.